From Vermont Public and the NPR Network, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And I'm Elodie Reed. For the past 20 years, there's been this controversy in Vermont. But for most of that time, it's felt sort of hush-hush. Many people don't really like talking about it. Some would rather avoid acknowledging it's there in the first place. But in the last couple years, it's gotten harder to ignore. More and more people have been speaking out. Her grandfather is in the picture. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Her grandfather is in the picture. One afternoon this spring, a dozen people form a circle in a dusty parking lot, hunched against a chilly breeze. It's cold. So what is the plan? It snowed in the... At home oh, this yeah, morning. Yeah. Really? Oh, boy. They're standing outside the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum in Burlington. Ethan Allen is a celebrated figure in Vermont's colonial history, or not so celebrated. And the Allens, they were the lead family who, like, essentially um, surveyed most of the land in Vermont and, like, acquired it and then resold it. Huh. Huh. So more land grabbers? I mean, he's the number one land grabber, yeah. Oh, wow. Ethan Allen. Most of the people gathered in this parking lot drove down from Canada or up from Albany, New York. But they're not actually here to take issue with Ethan Allen. They're here to protest an exhibit inside the building called the Abenaki, Vermont's First People. It was curated by a Vermont nonprofit, Al-Nabaiwi, which says it's dedicated to preserving Vermont Abenaki heritage. And here's one more twist. These protesters, here to take a stand against a history exhibit dedicated to Abenaki heritage, yep, 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 yep. they're Abenaki. Okay. What? We all came from Odenek just to make sure that we can see what's going on, and see if we can't get our, uh, get our voices heard. If you live in Vermont, you've probably heard of the Abenaki. They're the original caretakers of the land now known as Vermont and New Hampshire, and also Quebec, Maine, and Massachusetts. The groups you're probably most familiar with are those that have been recognized by our state as Abenaki tribes. What you might not know is that there are Abenaki First Nations north of the border, in Canada. They have a very different type of recognition, federal recognition, from the Canadian government. They're called Odenak First Nation and Woolenak First Nation. Both nations are headquartered in Quebec, and they're both Western Abenaki. By the way, some people say it Abenaki with a French pronunciation. We're using the more anglicized Abenaki. That's the incompetence of this museum. Today, gathered in the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum parking lot, are citizens and allies of Odenak. It's, it's family. Family is so important. And uh, cultural appropriation is uh, a serious matter. And, the thing they're here to protest is the use of a single photograph in this Abenaki history exhibit. It's from a 1906 postcard, which is captioned with the words, Indian Camp, Highgate Springs, Vermont. It has been enlarged and printed on a wall of the exhibit. The photo is black and white. It shows women and children in the background, standing by the door of a cabin. In the foreground, a man in a hat holds a pan over a fire. And who that man is, and who he's related to, are the main points of contention. On one side are the Odenak First Nation government and some of its citizens, saying the man in the image is related to the Panadis, a well-established Abenaki family. 
On the other, you have the Vermont nonprofit Al Nabaiwi, saying the man in the image is related to one of the curators of the exhibit, Holly LaFrance. She belongs to one of the groups that the state of Vermont recognizes as Abenaki. And then they're claiming, you know, Holly LaFrance in front of a pen, their family photo, saying that she's related. That's my ancestor. It's a joke. LaFrance isn't here on this chilly spring day, and she has declined to be interviewed. Instead, volunteers from Al Nabaiwi wander out from the museum and into the parking lot, where Odenek citizens and some allies are circled up. Within seconds, the arguing begins. I don't, who are you, sir? Who are you? What I am here to say is Holly has a picture of her grandfather in that picture. So you have basically proven that Holly is related to the Pennedy. Prove anything. Thanks. She well, won't respond. This is all the Pennedy family. So you tell right. me they well, see that. Good. She is related to the Pennedys then. Oh, no. this, this is her <laughs> genealogy. How? Where do you see a family name in there? I. I we go back not, four generations. It's not. It's not clear yet. But right. her right. grandfather. Her grandfather is in. If it's not clear, no. then don't stand her in front of Her grandfather is in the picture. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Her grandfather is in the picture. Yeah, well, okay, 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 okay. There's no way for me to say with 100% certainty who the man in this century old photo is. I emailed the two places the image is publicly available, the Special Collection Library at the University of Vermont and the Vermont Historical Society. Neither had identifying information. So, this fight over who is in a photograph on the wall of a museum exhibit in Burlington, it's a microcosm of this controversy playing out around Vermont and beyond. And it illustrates a lot of the tensions and frustrations baked into this situation. Emotions are high. People are upset. Because this is really a fight over whether Vermont and its state-recognized tribes should decide who is Abenaki. And Odenak and Woolinak First Nations, federally recognized tribes in Canada, don't think they should. This is a dispute that goes back at least two decades but it didn't really come into public view until 2022 at an event held at the University of Vermont. I wanted to acknowledge uh, friends of Odenak that came here today. It was a symposium sponsored by UVM's history department, described as featuring, quote, unheard Abenaki voices from the Odenak First Nation. At that event, Abenaki citizens who belonged to Odenak First Nation in Canada came to Vermont and said that the state-recognized tribes here are made up of people who aren't really Abenaki. They sell fake native arts jewelry, and they write books, they do conferences, they use the fishing and hunting rights that are treaty rights meant for real Abenaki. They distort our culture and language beyond recognition. They are erasing us by replacing us. Members and allies of Vermont's state-recognized tribes said these accusations hurt. I'm getting calls because we've got kids at UVM, Abenakis who are at UVM, and the concern is, are we safe at the University of Vermont? Because if they weren't actually at this event, they heard. And they heard that the way the American Abenaki, the Vermont Abenaki, were castigated. The UVM event was the first time I, and many others, heard the sentiment shared so directly and publicly. 
But I'd heard whispers about this ever since starting to report agriculture stories for Vermont Public a few years ago. As soon as I started building relationships with sources involved in Indigenous issues, this question of legitimacy came up. And I'll just say here, I'm not Indigenous, but I have been the primary person reporting on this story in our newsroom. And through this reporting, we have learned from a number of Indigenous sources and experts that being Indigenous is different from other forms of identity, such as race or gender. While there's not a universally agreed upon definition of what it means to be Indigenous, one common understanding is that it is a political identity. Basically, that you're a citizen of an Indigenous nation in addition to being a citizen of the U.S. or Canada, and that it is up to each Indigenous nation to collectively determine who belongs and who does not. But this gets complicated when it comes to Vermont's state-recognized tribes. Because as we're going to discuss in this story, they differ a lot from many Indigenous nations. Not just because they're recognized at the state level, which is relatively uncommon, but also because of how some of their members, and even leaders, define what it means to be Indigenous. There are all kinds of lived experiences. We are not less than here. We are different. And that difference is central to the question of legitimacy. Not everyone thinks we should be covering this controversy. We've experienced strong pushback on the stories we've published since the UVM event in 2022. And there's also um, responsible journalism. And yes, I'm looking at you, Lodi, um, to, to keep a one-sided narrative, for whatever reason that is, to just concentrate on Odinac's issue and not be responsible in the journalism for balance. But in our reporting prior to that 2022 UVM event with Odinac citizens, we excluded both Odinac First Nation and Woolinac First Nation and their criticism of Vermont's state-recognized tribes. For instance, you might remember this brave little state episode about Abenaki peoples from 2016. What is the status of the Abenaki Native Americans in Vermont today? We brought Bethany's question straight to some of the people who can answer it best. That episode focused on Vermont's state-recognized tribes and their increasing visibility. We've been here forever, and they just recognized us. People kept saying that there were no natives in Vermont and everything like that. And then finally it was like, ta-da, yeah, there are. (laughs) Well, the status of Abenaki peoples in Vermont today is more complicated and contentious than we've previously reported. And some of you have been wondering about it, too. My name is Jenny Prince, and I'm wondering what it means that the Odenak Abenaki First Nation of Quebec recently denounced all Vermont and New Hampshire tribes due to self-indigenization. Right around the time Elodie started her reporting on this issue, we got this question from Jenny Prince. Prince lives in the Champlain Islands, and she is not Indigenous herself. She says she submitted this question to the show because she'd heard about this dispute, and it wasn't getting a ton of media attention at the time. I wanted to encourage Brave Little State to to talk about this because I think that within Vermont, it has been a really sensitive subject. And it hasn't been something that maybe a lot of people really welcomed. I think that Vermonters are protective of the Abenaki identity, white Vermonters, non-Abenaki Vermonters. This conflict is connected to a long history. We didn't travel here from somewhere else. We emerged here 
both for indigenous peoples and settlers. White Americans have dressed up, played Indian uh, over time, uh, from the revolution to the present day. And it's connected to a disputed history. For the original Vermonters, the Abenaki, eugenics and racial prejudice led to a life lived in the shadows. We never lived in hiding. This is not something I would like the next generation to read about. It's also related to a fundamental disconnect over what it means to be indigenous. I felt a sense of connection to that ancestor who gave me that sense of connection to the land. When it moves from being about a people, a nation, a collective, and defending their land and place-based rights to defending your own individual rights based on some ancestral claim, that's a total problem. And I think Part of the conflict is about whether the state of Vermont should be recognizing groups as indigenous in the first place. But I don't think these people were coming forward for state recognition for any reason other than that they were of Abenaki descent and wanted to preserve their culture. This is a conflict with money and power at stake. It's, it's really clear to me that this is politics, and politics is about power and control. But also, the right to be viewed as an authority on your community's story. And I've heard this over and over. We just want to honor you. Well, to honor us is to listen to us. Listen to what we are saying. This is a story for anyone who wants to understand the deeper context of this controversy, from the history to the ongoing tension. Whether you're a citizen of Odenak or Willinac First Nations, a member of Vermont state-recognized tribes, or neither. There's so much to cover that we're breaking it up into three episodes. Welcome to Recognized, a special series from Brave Little State. This is Chapter One. And a quick note here that all three chapters of this story cover sensitive material, including some slurs. Listen with care. We'll be right back. The story of Abenaki peoples is, broadly speaking, agreed upon until the year 1800 or so. In a way, that's when this dispute begins, with disputed history. But first, the word Odenak means in the village, and it's a location that has been significant to Abenaki peoples for many generations, long before the year 1800, and long before any Europeans showed up on the continent. So, let's take a trip to Odenak. Good day. How are you, Elodie? Better with coffee. I met up with a reporter from New Hampshire Public Radio, Julia Furukawa, on a very cold day last winter. I can't believe it's coffee. It's 10 degrees out. The sound of success. We woke up very early. So I was technically awake at 5. And drove to Odenac First Nations Reserve in Quebec. From the Vermont-Canada border crossing in Highgate Springs, Odenac is pretty much a two-hour drive straight north. The reserve is right next to the Riviere Saint-Francois, or the St. Francis River. On that riverbank sits Quebec's first-ever Aboriginal museum institution, the Musée des Abenaquis. We visit the museum with Odenac First Nations Assistant General Director Susie Obamsawin. She leads us towards a brick building. So this is the museum. And she points out the museum is housed in the former Indian Day School. It was a Catholic school. They were being taught in French. And um, my grandfather went there. My great-grandfather went there. Um, Yeah, they were teaching about making sure they are going to be good civilians. In other words... Taking away 
their Indian identity to make sure they fit into the Canadian society. We walk inside the former school-turned-museum, which is full of kids on a field trip. There's a giant map of the Northeast near the entrance. That's where Susie begins our tour. Um, so usually the, the tour of the museum starts with the, the, like some words related to the territory, the Indakina. In English, Indakina means our territory. So our territory used to go all the way down to what is today Boston. And, of course, the Lake Champlain was part of our territory. Lake Champlain is where Susie says all of Abenaki history begins. And Lake Champlain is actually our birthplace, uh, according to the creation story of the nation. Uh, We were made out of stone first, and then because um, it was not good enough, we were then made out of black ash. And this is why black ash is so important to us as a nation. This creation story can give you a sense of just how long Abenaki peoples, or known by another name, Wabanaki peoples, or people of the dawn, have been here in this place. We didn't travel here from somewhere else. We emerged here. This is Molly Obamsawin. She's a citizen of Odenak First Nation who studies Abenaki history. From that time, we spent generations and generations learning how to live here in these homelands. And Molly Obamsawin, by the way, is only distantly related to Susie Obamsawin. Obamsawin is a pretty common Abenaki last name. We developed an incredible system of understanding the moon cycles, and there's lots of stories attached to that. Um, And we have all our cultural heroes like Gluskab. Molly says Gluskab is the first human and first Wabanaki. And so Gluskab is hilarious um, because he just kind of goes around messing up, uh, making mistakes and doing things like taking the easy way out and like having to learn over and over why it's important to, um, I guess, act with intention. He learns lessons for us so that we have something to hold on to and make reference to in the way that we live our lives. In addition to holding lessons, Molly says Wabanaki stories can give important information about the geological time periods during which Abenaki peoples have been here. Some of our oldest stories talk about the time when the people learned that there was going to be an ice age. We also have stories about megafauna, like giant beavers, which we also know through Western science did exist here. Archaeological digs have also verified stories and legends about Abenaki peoples going to Odenak. Here's Susie Obamsawin again. But with the diggings, we can actually say that that site was a site that was already known to Abenaki people before colonization, and it was for thousands of years. Having proof of that was just so much comfort. Like now it's clear, like we are not refugees. We knew that place before. Prior to colonization, Abenaki peoples weren't just clustered at Odenak. They lived all throughout their territory. Back to Molly Obamsawin. And we moved following the food, but also following and maintaining complex trade economies. And that would also be conducted through the waterways. And we knew a lot about the cultures surrounding us, our brother nations and our ally nations. Fast forward to the early 1600s. Molly says there was some warfare among nations during a period of what was likely food scarcity. Also happening at that time. With the 
arrival of Europeans was the great dying. Disease, warfare, enslavement, and slaughter. One study shows the indigenous population in the Americas declined by 90% from 60 million people to only 6 million in the first century after the arrival of Europeans. And that is what really started to cause a lot of the great migrations and displacements um, and disruptions in Wabanaki lifeways at that time. Abenaki peoples began moving out of places like Vermont and New Hampshire and into the northern parts of their territory, in modern-day Quebec. French colonists began setting up mission villages there. Among them were Odenac and Woolinac, and Molly says these would become a place of refuge for permanent settlement as well as temporary relief during colonial warfare. Um, at home, at Odenac and Woolinac, um, we are still the stewards of those homelands. We never ceded those territories, um, but we did take refuge from the warfare and the genocide that was targeting us. I think our ancestors decided that it was easier to stay alive on the north side of what would become the border. This brings us to the year 1800. Odenak and Wollinak say their ancestors had left what is now Vermont and New Hampshire by then. And in the years following, they would visit and move back into southern areas of their territory and places beyond, like the Adirondacks and the capital region areas of New York. And so we would travel down and um, we also became economically dependent on trading with settlers, right? And um, we also continued to go down and visit our relatives in these various outposts that were created um, in that period from the 1800s and the 1900s. Among those outposts was Thompson's Point in Charlotte, Vermont. A 1954 newspaper article in the Burlington Free Press says seven or eight Abenaki families were living in tents at the turn of the 20th century. Among them were brother and sister William and Marion Obamsawin. There's that name again. Their father, the newspaper article said, initially paddled to the spot by canoe and later brought his kids from Canada after he built a house. Nearly 50 years later, the Free Press story said the Obamsawins were the last living Abenakis at Thompson's Point. Recordings that an anthropologist made of the Obamsawins in 1956 are kept in Dartmouth College's Rahner Special Collections Library. That's in Hanover, New Hampshire. Molly Obamsawin recently studied for a research residency there, and she brought me one day this past spring. You're with me, so you're Inside the library, I ask Molly to play a recording of William Obamsawin. Hopefully, we won't be too disruptive. We're including it here with permission from Odenak First Nation. In it, William Obamsawin repeats a story passed down over many generations. Sharman Bay, where the British trader crossed the lake there, where the British landed down there. Is that Point? Sharman Point, yeah. What he's talking about is, like, the American Revolution, right? And when there started to be all this action in the area around, like, Champlain, where we were currently living at the time, right? As we listen to archival recordings, Molly and I are sitting at a desk surrounded by giant boxes of papers kept by Gordon Day. Day was a non-Indigenous anthropologist known for doing in-depth study of Abenaki peoples. And Molly is looking for something. I'm just looking for a specific thing. It's in the 70s. The 1970s. 
when this historical narrative we've talked about so far is challenged. For the first time, members of what would become Vermont's state-recognized tribes started saying that, in fact, whole communities of Abenaki peoples stayed behind in Vermont and New Hampshire after 1800. And he starts getting letters from his friend who's a attorney. And the attorney is like, please give me information on what's happening in Swanton. Who are these people? What was happening in Swanton? That's when we come back. The story for centuries was that Abenaki peoples fled north across the Canadian border to the reserves in Quebec. Then from there, they occasionally visited or moved back to more southern outposts. But in the 1970s, you start hearing that Abenaki peoples actually stayed south of the Canadian border the whole time, secretly living among the white settlers that surrounded them. This version of history, it took hold thanks in large part to a man named Homer St. Francis. Uh, Today I'm not in a very good mood because I I got a word that they even uh, shot down our ABE grant because they're afraid uh, the Abenaki's getting too educated for them. Here, St. Francis is speaking at the since-closed Burlington College in 1989. He's talking about how the state of Vermont is marginalizing its original inhabitants. They don't want them to have a high school diploma or GED or anything else. They want to force them into the slave market for this country. Well, they're not going in the slave market for this country. We will survive. We've survived for a thousand years. We will survive again. Homer St. Francis is a big reason why we're talking about Abenaki peoples in Vermont at all. He was really good at saying things that made people take notice. As uh, the people of this so-called state are fed up with this bureaucratic bullshit. His name began popping up in newspaper articles in the mid-1970s as part of a group in the Swanton Highgate area of northwestern Vermont. The group was saying they were Abenaki, that they had always been in Vermont, and that they, therefore, had rights to land as well as free hunting and fishing. This was happening at the same time as the nationwide Red Power Movement. Indigenous peoples all over the country were fighting for the federal government to honor treaties promising sovereignty and land and water rights. Hundreds of American Indians marched on the Capitol today. They are part of the longest walk, a 3,000-mile march from west to east coast. And they are protesting what they call anti-Indian sentiment in Congress. Karen Chagru of station WAMU was there as the... In Vermont, Homer St. Francis didn't just align the fight for indigenous sovereignty with a nationwide movement. He also aligned his cause with that of other marginalized people around the state. Uh, I have calls every day from poor people and poor farmers, and and they're right up in arms. Here he is again at that 1989 event. You got to stay together as a group. Strength is in numbers. So, like I said, if I have to, I'll start a whole new society here. I'm not afraid to adopt them into the tribe if need be. The quote tribe St. Francis is talking about had many names, including the St. Francis Sokoki Band of Abenakis of Vermont. We're going to call it the St. Francis Sokoki Band for short. Homer St. Francis acted as the chief of the St. Francis Sokoki Band for a total of 15 years. 
not without controversy. Shortly after this group first became visible in northwestern Vermont, the anthropologist Gordon Day, as well as Swanton residents, cast doubt on St. Francis's claims that he and hundreds of others were in fact Abenaki. In a 1976 article in the Rutland Herald, the Swanton police chief said that he, quote, never even knew there were any Indians in the town until about six months ago. Pretty soon, factions emerged within the St. Francis Sokoki Band itself, leading to splinter groups. One of those splinter groups accused Homer St. Francis of being, among other things, quote, power hungry. He was a lot of things. You know, and he was. He was a lot of things. But when Homer was on his game uh, and he hadn't been drinking, Homer was brilliant. This is Jeff Benet. He is not Indigenous and has never claimed to be. But he got involved with the St. Francis Sokoki Band in the late 1970s as the director of Indian education for the local school district. He knew Homer St. Francis well. He says that some people saw St. Francis as a bully. But according to Benet, that was all part of St. Francis's strategy to raise the profile of the St. Francis Sokoki Band through acts of civil disobedience and generating publicity to get into newspapers. He made these statements, and then the, the major one was that oh, we'll be uh, taking over Swanton, and people would be absolutely ripped. What do you mean taking over? Like our houses? And, you know, it was a wink and a nod, but he said, well, sure. You know, and did people get upset with that? Absolutely. In addition to the threat of taking over Swanton, St. Francis led multiple protests to fight for free fishing licenses. He also encouraged St. Francis Sokoki Band members to stop using state license plates. And he tried to convince the federal government to leave the Missisquoi National Wildlife Refuge and pay $100 million in back rent. They did not. But St. Francis's forceful advocacy did lead to some gains for his community. A 1986 article in the Rutland Herald Vermont Sunday Magazine credits Jeff Benet's work as the director of Indian education with reducing dropout rates in Franklin County schools. St. Francis also founded the Abenaki Self-Help Association, which that Sunday Magazine article says was helping people get their GEDs and distributing food to community members in need. Something else that the St. Francis Koki Band fought for was official recognition from both the state and federal governments. They got state recognition ever so briefly in 1976, but it was quickly revoked. As for federal recognition, in 1980, St. Francis sent to the federal government a letter of intent stating their plans to file a petition for federal acknowledgement as an indigenous nation. Remember that petition, because it's going to play an important role in this story. North of the border, leaders of Odinak and Woolinak First Nations were initially supportive of the St. Francis Sokoki Band. They even issued resolutions recognizing the band in 1976 and 1977. And there's evidence of Odinak and Woolinak First Nations support of the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki as recently as 1999. There are numerous stories, too, about cultural exchange between Odinak First Nation and the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki. From language classes to dance groups to basket making. Here's Bonita Lenga, a member of one of the present day Vermont state recognized tribes, speaking at a press conference this past spring. I then went on to join the Wabanaki dancers as a teenager. Lenga is talking about participating in a group that learned traditional dances from an Odenak teacher in the late 1990s. Where we would meet for monthly rehearsals in a potluck in Burlington, Vermont. 
We did many performances, I'm sure, over the years. And here's Fred Wiseman, another member of Vermont State Recognized Tribes, speaking earlier this year to Odenak officials at a meeting of the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs. Yeah, you can remember the old days when I was up at Odenak a lot, teaching, uh, helping, working uh, with you. Wiseman also recalls the time when these relationships began to cool off. But after 2003, except for occasionally, I did not feel all that welcome. I did not feel all that safe, like we had when we were all working together. My community's always been a pretty open community, and, and, and yeah. you know that. Okay. No, I just, it's not that I don't <laughs> feel... Always okay. open to everyone. Yeah, maybe I overstated. <laughs> I just don't, well, not safe, no. but not welcome uh, anymore. Do you... 2003. This year being talked about here was a big pivot point. It's when Odenak First Nation changed course and began denouncing non-federally recognized groups claiming to be Abenaki, like the St. Francis Sokoki Band in Vermont. It's also around this time that Odenak citizens began asking people in the St. Francis Sokoki Band who their relatives were. That's according to Jacques Watso, an elected official at Odenak. But when we started asking questions, where are you from, which family, then that's when the, 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 they raised a lot of red flags in Odenak and they stopped coming to Odenak because they, they, we were trying to hold them accountable. Essentially, Odenak officials say they realized that members of the St. Francis Sokoki Band couldn't produce genealogical documentation proving they were related to other Abenaki citizens, documentation that Odenak requires of its own citizens. Also, something else happened just 10 months prior that further called into question the St. Francis Sokoki Band's legitimacy. Remember the petition for federal acknowledgement that the St. Francis Sokoki Band started filing in 1980? Well, two decades later in 2002, they still hadn't received an official determination. Homer St. Francis, who submitted the first piece of paper for this petition, was no longer alive. We'll talk more in Chapter 2 about why this process takes so long. But it's at this time in 2002 that the St. Francis Sokoki Band did receive a response to their petition for federal acknowledgement from the Vermont government, specifically the Vermont Attorney General's office. This response came in the form of a 244-page document. And just a note, we rely on a ton of public reports and documents throughout this series, so I've enlisted my Vermont public colleagues to help narrate. Here's part of what the conclusion says. The invisibility of any tribe from 1790 to 1974 was so complete that historians, anthropologists, and census takers were unable to locate it. Basically, the Vermont AG's office could not find evidence of a continuous Abenaki community in Vermont, separate from Odenak and Wollinak First Nations. It was a public rejection of the St. Francis Sokoki Band's version of Abenaki history and it wouldn't be the last. Reporter Elodie Reed. In Chapter 2, we take a closer look at that public rejection. We also compare the processes for federal and state recognition and why the Vermont groups failed at one but ultimately succeeded in the other. 
we had a general rule against having non-Vermont residents come forward. That's coming up next in this three-part series, Recognized. The second and third chapters are available right now in the Brave Little State podcast feed or on our website, bravelittlestate.org. That's also where you can find an editor's note talking more about our team's approach to this reporting. Recognized was reported by Elodie Reed. Sabine Poops is our producer. The senior producer and managing editor is me, Josh Crane. Additional editing from our executive producer, Angela Evansy, as well as Tristan Otto, Brittany Patterson, Myra Flynn, and Julia Futakawa. Julia and David Savoy contributed reporting to this episode. Extra support from Mark Davis and Sophie Stevens. Theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Liam Elder Connors, Peter Hirschfeld, Abigail Giles, Mary Engish, Kiana Haskin, Kaylee Mumford, David Littlefield, Lori Kigonia, Kevin Trevelin, Mike Doherty, Laura Nakasaka, Noah Viamarine Cutter, Eric Ford, Fran Tobin, Sarah Ashworth, the Indigenous Journalists Association, and so many others. For a full list, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening.